0: Welcome to the New Jersey Law Podcast, where we discuss the latest court decisions and legal news, as well as other helpful tips and information. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. And now, your host, New Jersey attorney, Michael T. Wilkos, Esquire. All right. We'll get to the cases in just one second. But first, I want to talk about the judiciary's rollout of two-factor authentication. And all this means is that when you go to log into eCourts, you're going to enter your username, which is your attorney ID number, then your password. Now there's an extra step. And that extra step is that it is going to send you a special code, I believe six-digit code, to either your cell phone or your email address, which you will have to enter before you can access eCourts. And the cell phone and the email address come from the information that you entered when signing up for the 2021 annual attorney registration. Now, this is an interesting development if you commonly have your secretary access eCourts for you to retrieve documents or to file things. And because when they go to log in, they're going to get this prompt for the special code, which may end up going to your personal cell phone or to your work email address. So it could end up being very inconvenient if you don't set it up correctly. For example, your secretary might then text you, hey, send me the code, or they might email you, send me the code, but the code is only good for 10 minutes. So by the time you do that, if you're in a client meeting or on a phone call, the link may expire and they have to do it all again. Now, one idea I had, and I have not confirmed that this is proper, I have not tested it, but I think it could work, is to instruct your secretary when logging in to use the email option to get that two-factor authentication code. And then on your end, you can set up a mailbox rule very easily whether you're using Microsoft 365 or Google or whatever, you can set up a forwarding rule that when you receive that one-time code, it's going to forward it to your secretary immediately. And you could do that a number of ways. The email address for that code is 2 fa mailbox at judiciary.state.nj.us. So you can say if I ever get an email from that email address, just forward it to my secretary. The subject is also on-demand one-time passcode. And so you could say, whenever I get an email with that subject, forward it to my secretary. That way, you know, he or she won't have to go to you and say, hey, what's the code? You might be on a phone call, the 10 minutes might expire. I think that's going to be a really good way to do this. Now, another option might be to just use your secretary's email address as the person who will get two-factor authentication emails. I don't like this as much because if that secretary is ever out, they're not going to get it. It also might have the effect of locking you out of eCourts. I I like to log in myself from time to time to review things, to file things, especially if it's after hours. So I don't like that option as much, but you might be able to do it. So uh, two ideas for you think about them. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear kind of how you're implementing this whole two-factor authentication idea. I think it's great in terms of security, but you just need to find the right way so that it does not affect your efficiencies and that so that you're not always um, being reached out to, hey, send me the code, send me the code, send me the code. That way everybody will have the code if they need the code. In other news, there was a recent notice to the bar that came out last week, and it talked about COVID-19 and some different protocols and procedures for proceeding with trials. And it's very interesting, not incredibly helpful in terms of, you know, when when are these trials going to take place? It does say that criminal cases will have the highest priority for the trials, and that they are contemplating social distanced in-person jury trials as well as virtual civil jury trials. So uh, check out that notice to the bar. It's not very long. has has some interesting information in terms of face masks, when they must be worn, when they can be taken down, if there's plexiglass in between, things of that nature. So we'll have to watch that, especially as the cases in, in New Jersey go down. And I believe at the end of this week— Um, New Jersey is scheduled to actually um, get rid of their indoor mask mandate in many places. So we're going to have to see how that affects the courts and whether there's going to be another notice to the bar that comes out and potentially supersedes this notice to the bar regarding COVID-19. All right. The first case that I want to talk about is a case called Jeffrey versus State of New Jersey. This is a civil case, and it is actually uh, quite tragic what happened. The, the plaintiff was a, was a young man who suffered really severe injuries on a, on a single-vehicle motorcycle accident, resulting in him becoming a quadriplegic. And his claim in this case, because it was a single-vehicle accident— was that the EMTs or the paramedics or whoever responded to the scene of the accident might have worsened his injuries by the way they picked him up and they put him in the ambulance, so taking him off the ground and putting him into the ambulance. But um, this case involved public entities such as um, University Hospital, uh, the state of New Jersey, and some public ambulance companies as well. And We all know that when there's a public entity, you need to give notice of tort claims within 90 days of the accident. This was not done in large part because this young man who had been a functioning individual for all these years is now a quadriplegic, and he actually wasn't even able to consult with an attorney until seven months after the accident. When the attorney was retained He moved for permission to file a late notice of tort claim. The defendants opposed that, and the trial court denied that motion, saying that there was not extraordinary circumstances, that this man should have known when he was injured that there could have been a claim against the public entity. Now, this is very interesting. We all know that, you know, when it comes to these motions, the... Uh, denial is is usually what happens. You know, rarely do you even get a late notice of tort claim granted. But what the appellate division in this case, you know, they looked at the severe nature of the accident. They looked at the what they called catastrophic, life-altering injuries that he suffered. The fact that he was a paraplegic now, when he was just just before a a well-functioning adult. And he also completed a two-month inpatient program at Kessler for rehabilitation. And they basically said this radical shift from a motorcyclist to a quadriplegic wheelchair user is basically—it's a new reality that should not have barred him from filing the late— notice of tort claim. The appellate division found that there were extraordinary circumstances and they reversed and remanded for further proceedings. Now, um, it's a an interesting result uh, just in the line of cases regarding late notice of claim. And I think uh, the, the lesson here is whenever you are involved with a public entity in a lawsuit, make sure that notice of claim is given And if not, make sure that you are moving immediately for permission to file a late notice of claim. I guess the sad part about this case is, um, you know, the trial court decision was rendered in 2018 and now the appellate division decision comes out three years later, essentially. So, um, they lost a lot of time in the lawsuit. Um, interesting decision, but this is this is truly the exception and not the rule. You never want to count on this late notice of claim ability. Usually, you're going to have these denied unless something uh, as crazy as this case was and as tragic as this case was happens. The next case that I want to talk about is a case called Cottrell versus Holtzberg, which is all about an arbitration agreement that was signed when the plaintiff decedent was admitted to a nursing home facility. So the agreement was signed in 2017. The plaintiff remained at the facility for 20 days, but then she was discharged. The plaintiff was readmitted to the facility about nine months later, where she remained until her death a little bit after that. During that second admission, the plaintiff did not sign an additional arbitration agreement. When a lawsuit was filed alleging medical and corporate negligence, the defendants moved to compel arbitration, citing that arbitration agreement that was signed during the first admission. The trial court denied the motion, basically saying that there was no agreement to arbitrate issues arising from the second admission the appellate division agreed with the trial court judge basically citing um, standard principles of contract law there must be meeting of the minds for an agreement to exist before enforcement is considered the appellate division agreed that a clause giving the arbitrator the ability to decide gateway disputes and issues about interpreting the arbitration agreement did not apply because that is for a judge, not an arbitrator, to decide whether it applies to the second admission. The court also relied on the express language of that arbitration agreement to affirm the denial of the motion to compel arbitration because basically it said, any and all claims arising out of this stay, including all prior stays at the nursing home facility, would be covered by the arbitration agreement, but there was nothing addressing subsequent stays at the nursing facility. And the key language here is that courts should not assume that the parties agreed to arbitrate arbitrability unless there is clear and unmistakable evidence that that they did so. It's a very interesting decision. If you represent facilities such as the one in the case, this decision gives you some guidance on how you could maybe clean up the language and potentially avoid this issue. And if you represent plaintiffs in cases like this, this decision gives you some guidance on how to challenge arbitration clauses. And, you know, if even if they signed it for the first admission, subsequent admissions may not be covered by that arbitration agreement. So you can always challenge it and uh, pursue your right to sue in court versus going to arbitration. The last case that we'll be discussing today is a case called State of New Jersey versus Bellamy. And this is a criminal case. And to quote the decision, defendant was convicted by a jury of the horrific cold-blooded murder of two individuals. Defendant was 19 years old at the time and had spent years in the care and or custody of the Division of Child Protection and Permanency and some years in the care and custody of a family member who sexually abused her. When the murder occurred, she was a college student, and she had no prior juvenile history, and uh, she did not have an adult record either. There was a resentencing at some point, and that is the subject of this particular appeal. The decision is quite lengthy, but basically the appellate division agreed with the defendant and reversed and remanded for a new resentencing. And one of the issues was a law, NJSA 2C 44-1B14, which was a mitigating factor even though it was enacted after defendant's prior sentence. And this law applies when a defendant is less than 26 years of age when the crime occurs. The court addressed some other factors and mitigating factors that uh, possibly should have been considered. And it also discussed that defendant should have had access to her records from the Division of Child Protection and Permanency to prepare for her sentence. So based on that, the appellate division remanded for a new sentencing. And they also indicated that the application for records may be made to the law division. It does not have to go to the family part. All right, that's all I have for you this week on the New Jersey Law Podcast. If you have a second, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you downloaded this podcast episode. And that way I can continue to make content that you enjoy. And of course, if you have any suggestions, thoughts, or feedback, just shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks and have a great week. Take care.